Uh, well, today we're beginning a, a new series in the New Testament book of James. Uh, this series is going to run from today until the first or second Sunday of August. And one of the things that I wanted to encourage you to do while we're in this series is to begin to read through the book of James and uh, read it and reread it uh, as we go through this series and just allow it to really uh, get into your heart, get into your uh, mind. If you are participating with the church in our uh, daily Bible reading plan, which is fairly s simple, you know, one chapter uh, a day, one of the things you might want to do is just add a chapter of James uh, each day. And if you do that, by the time we're finished with this series, you will have read the book of James uh, several times. It's a very short uh, book of the Bible. Uh, the book of James is believed to have been written somewhere between 45 and 48 A.D., uh, which makes it one of, likely, the earliest of the New Testament books. Uh, Matthew, Galatians, and 1 Thessalonians were written quite early, uh, but uh, this is likely uh, the earliest, uh, at least one of, but likely the earliest of the New Testament books. Uh, it's widely accepted that the, the author of this book, the, the James who wrote this book, uh, was the half-brother of Jesus. And this is noteworthy, I think, for uh, a number of reasons. One being that James did not initially uh, believe in his brother Jesus. He, he didn't believe in Jesus' claims about himself. And Scripture uh, lets us know that he was even uh, somewhat hostile toward Jesus. John uh, 7, 5 sums it up very simply by saying, uh, For even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Uh, James, this uh, half-brother of Jesus, the, the author of this book of the Bible, once he did believe in Jesus, became a very significant leader in the early church and presided over a very important council of the church called the Jerusalem Council that you read about in Acts 15. Uh, James was written, this book was written to the church at large, uh, likely primarily targeted to Jewish believers in Jesus who had been scattered throughout the world in large part due to the persecution that had come upon them in Jerusalem, persecution that was the result of their faith in Jesus. And so it's written to people who were very familiar with hardship, people who had a very clear understanding that life is temporary. And this book of James is a very practical book of the Bible. It is about practical Christian living. It's sort of a how-to guide of the Christian life. And because it is, many Christians believe that James should be one of the first books of the Bible that new believers uh, read through. I, I think it's... Um, we, we need to acknowledge, however, that some Christians have had a bit of an uncomfortable relationship with this book. And the reason they've had a bit of an uncomfortable relationship with this book is because they have, have somewhat felt that there might be a conflict between what James teaches and what the Apostle Paul teaches uh, when Paul teaches us on the subject of grace, which he does uh, so wonderfully. You see, Paul wrote things like this to the church. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And we love this, and so we, we repeat these writings of Paul over and over again. 
James, we don't repeat so much. James says things like this. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. And uh, we'll talk more about that next week. But, but I, I think what he's saying is don't be deceived that, that uh, merely uh, listening to the word uh, makes you a Christian. Do what it says. James writes things like this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And we get really uncomfortable. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Could we go back to Paul? James writes things like this. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. He writes, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And James was just a world-class pastor in making uh, commands of his congregations, of his congregation. He, he, and of these people that he wrote to, in 108 verses, the book of James gives 54 have-to commands. That's a lot of commands. I don't think I'm going to give you 54 commands today. And then just a 108 verses, he gives 54 commands. And so many Christians have had a fair amount of discomfort uh, with this book of the Bible, not being sure exactly how to take it. But, but I want to assure you today, I'm not going to talk about it in great depth, but I want to assure you there is no conflict between Paul and James. And, and this really brings us to our series that we've called Louder Than Words. Because what the book of James is, in addition to a how-to guide to the Christian life, it is an explanation of what real Christianity looks like. James is a book that basically says... This is what it means to be a Christian. So, you say you're a Christian. Do you look like this? Do you act like this? James doesn't, properly understood, contradict grace. James just says, if you're going to say you're a Christian, actually be a Christian. James tells us that the proof of whether or not we're really Christians is not just a matter of saying the right words, but it's proven out in our deeds. James tells us that our actions speak louder than words in revealing to us and revealing to those around us if we really do belong to Jesus. We can say that we're followers of Jesus, but if our actions don't support the claim, James would tell us the claim is hollow it is empty. When we say that we're Christians, but there's no evidence to back it up, a number of bad things happen. I think that our claim is unconvincing to those who don't follow Jesus, but they desperately want to see somebody who talks about Jesus and actually follows Jesus. Our claim is unconvincing to other Christians who want to give us the benefit of the doubt about our claims to believing in Jesus, but, but they know deep down in their heart that there should be some evidence to support what we say. 
and they become genuinely concerned about us. And I think that our claim is even unconvincing to ourselves. When we say one thing, but deep down in our hearts, we know we're not living consistent with that. It leads us to a place of feeling very uneasy uh, toward God. By the way, I just have to say that we need to get new headsets for different speakers because uh, Jeff or Ben or whoever used this last, whew, they messed it up bad. So, all right. So what... Happy I could share that with you. Uh, uh, James, properly understood, does not contradict grace. What James does is he calls our bluff. He drives home this point that our actions speak louder than our words. And so in this series, we're going to have to be willing to allow the book of James to challenge us. It's going to reveal to us what it really means to be a Christian. And what we need to do is we need to compare our lives to the picture James paints of what it looks like to be a Christian. We need to ask ourselves, do my actions match the picture that James is painting? Do my actions match my claim of knowing and belonging to Jesus? We need to accept that for our fellow Christians, for a watching world, for our children, and even for ourselves, we need to accept that our actions really are speaking louder than our words do. So with that background and set up for the series, today we're going to start in the first chapter of the book of James by looking at verses 1 through 18. I'm going to read through uh, those verses. They should be on the screen behind me if you'd like to follow along. Or uh, if you can see your Bible, you're welcome to follow along uh, in your Bible. So we're going to read these and then we'll uh, see what we find from these passages. Starting with verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower." For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. 
Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. Now, I know this is something I say a lot, but man, there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, we could go from now until August talking about those uh, 18 verses. But what I want to do today, what I was drawn to in uh, preparing for this series, preparing for this uh, first message, I was drawn to verse 1. Now, we're going to look at some of the other verses, but I was primarily drawn to verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we read that verse, there are a few things that we need to remember about James in order to really appreciate the opening line of this letter. First of all, we need to remember that James was a key leader in the early church. As I previously mentioned, it was James who presided over the Jerusalem council that dealt with how Jewish believers were going to welcome Gentile believers uh, into the church. Uh, This was uh, just a vitally important council. Cannot be overstated how important that council was. James was a key and important person in the church. Also keep in mind that James was the half-brother of Jesus. This was a man who had grown up with Jesus himself. The, the, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about their relationship, but it certainly stands to reason that they lived in the same house. They played together as boys. We have every reason to believe that they would have interacted like any set of brothers interact. James wasn't just spiritually a part of the body of Christ. James was biologically related to Jesus. I mean, hopefully we can appreciate that to be biologically related to Jesus, Savior, Lord, God, placed James in a very special uh, position in that early church. And, And yet with these significant privileges that James possessed, As he introduces himself, he introduces himself this way. He chooses to emphasize this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is significant, of course, because it lets us know that James, initially skeptical, has now come to believe in his brother Jesus. And as he links together God and Lord Jesus Christ, it lets us know that he had come to accept that what his brother said about himself was true. He had come to accept Jesus as Savior, Lord, and God. Now, imagine for a second, how persuaded do you have to be to finally come to the place where you believe your own brother is Savior, Lord, and and God. I mean, you've got to be pretty persuaded. I like my brother, but if he starts claiming to be God, I'm like, I'm sorry, you're whack. You know. And, and that was where James was initially. 
But he became persuaded. I mean, that's serious persuasion. <laughs> that enough should, should like cause us to seriously consider what Jesus says about himself. His own brother believed this claim. It's also significant because James doesn't see his relationship with Jesus as something to be exploited, as a way to, to get a leg up, as a, as a way to say, hey, listen to me. He, he doesn't remind everyone who he is to get their attention. He is the brother of Jesus, and yet he sees himself and he introduces himself as the servant of Jesus. Uh, Of all the ways that he could introduce himself, James, overseer of the Jerusalem council, James, the brother of Jesus, James, lead pastor of the Jerusalem church, he chooses James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that was his fundamental understanding of his identity, a servant of Jesus and he wasn't alone in this. You, you see this in many of the writers of the New Testament. In Romans, we find Paul writing, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. In Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. In Titus, Paul, a servant of God. He does add there, and he does other places as well, and an apostle. Of Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. In Jude, another, likely another half brother of Jesus, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, with several of the New Testament uh, writers, they do acknowledge their role as apostles. And, and of course, in the case of Jude, he mentions that he is the brother of James, he's also the half brother of Jesus. And all of that is fine and appropriate. There's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm not trying to press too much out of this. The point that I want to make is that throughout the Bible, we see the leaders of the early church understanding their relationship to Jesus, understanding their fundamental identity as being servant of Christ. And this needs to be the understanding of every single believer of every single Christian. We need to embrace this as our fundamental identity. Christians are servants, servants of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not peers of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, Brian, of course I know that. Well, we all, on some level, think we know that. But how do we act? We're not peers of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are servants. Now, now occasionally Christians will bring an objection to this. They'll note John 15, 15, where Jesus said that he no longer would call his disciples servants, but instead he would call them friends. I would just say to that that he was making a very specific point in John 15, that he was not going to treat his disciples the way a master would typically treat servants. He was going to bring them into his confidence. He wasn't going to to withhold anything from them. Uh, They would be more than servants in the way that they were treated by their master. But it is obvious from Scripture that the disciples of Jesus never stopped seeing themselves as servants of God and the Lord Jesus, as have been referenced in these uh, numerous verses that I've referenced here today. 
We are not God's peers. Christ is our friend, but he is our friend who is our Lord. It's a different friendship. We, we try to make it the exact same kind of friendship that we have with everybody else, but it's different. You have no other friend who is Lord and God. This is a different friendship than any that you have ever had. The early believers, the leaders of the early church, the apostles, all considered themselves to be servants of Christ. And to all of us here today who are Christians, that is who we are. At least that is who we are to be. That's who we should be. And there are a couple important things for us to keep in mind about servant, uh, about servants. Here's a big one. For servants, lip service does not cut it. It just doesn't. This is the fundamental uh, message uh, in the book of James. Lip service doesn't cut it. Now, Now imagine a situation where you are in a subordinate role to someone else. Uh, you, you are serving in a capacity where you, uh, you serve at their wishes. Maybe you're employed at their wishes. Your job is to do what this person tells you. And, and imagine that you give the proper uh, lip service to this person. You, you assure the master or your boss or whatever the case may be that you will do as they have directed you to do. So you, you say, yes, I agree with you. Yes, I will do what you've said. And then you promptly go out and you ignore what you were told to do. Does that work? I mean, in a master-servant relationship, can you conceive of that working? Can you conceive of that being acceptable? In a boss-employee relationship, does that work? Some of you have tried. Tell me, does it work? (laughs) No, it does not work. That's just not the way servant-master relationships work. Uh, play out. And yet this is exactly what many of us do to Jesus. In many areas of our lives, continually, continually, we say the right things, we nod in agreement to the commands of Jesus, and then we promptly go out and ignore them and do whatever we want. James calls us on this. This is not how servants are to relate to their master. This isn't how Christians are to relate to Christ. A servant has an absolute obligation. It is a requirement to have their words and their actions match. They have to match. When they accept the master as their master, their actions must match what the master requires And what they tell the master they will do. And this is what James is concerned about. He doesn't contradict Paul. James absolutely uh, believes that we're saved by grace through faith. He just tells us what is true. A servant's words and actions must match. And if they don't, then one of them speaks louder than the other. If they don't match, the actions tell more than the words tell. Their actions, your actions, my actions will tell the story more than 
words will about whether or not we really have Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. You know, we are very good at giving lip service to Jesus that isn't supported by our actions. And when we do this, many negative things occur, not the least of which is that our Christian witness is compromised. You know, I love that bumper sticker as much as uh, other Christians do that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. I love that bumper sticker. I, I, like, I love the sentiment of that. I, I know I'm not perfect. I know I mess up a lot. And so, man, I, I just am really thankful to know that I don't have to be perfect, but, but I am forgiven. You know, that, that bumper sticker sometimes just comes off a little, little flippant. Uh, a little even off-putting. So sometimes I think it's received by the world as, hey, don't expect anything more from me than you. I just, I, I just got the forgiven card. And I think the world is looking for people who take their faith in Jesus serious enough that they actually do what they say. And so when we, when we don't, our witness is hurt. So James understands himself to be a servant of Christ. And all of us who have received Christ should understand that we are his servants. What I want to do now is just quickly mention six things that I see in these verses 2 through 18 about servants of Christ. I would categorize these as characteristics of servants of Christ. Um, And we need to ask ourselves how our thoughts, attitudes, and actions match up with these six things that... Uh, James uh, tells us about. First of all, James tells us that servants of Christ embrace trials. They embrace trials. They don't run away from them. They don't resent them. They embrace them. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Servants of Christ believe that and act accordingly. Second, servants of Christ seek wisdom from God. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. So you say you're a Christian. Here is a question to ask yourself. Where do I go for wisdom? Where do I go for guidance for my life? Do you continually seek and act on the wisdom of the world? Or do you regularly seek and act according to the wisdom of God? Many of us say we're Christians. But far more often we are employing worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom in our day-to-day lives. You know, worldly wisdom tells us things like, you know, this life is all, of, all there is. And so you better wring out every bit of enjoyment you can in these 75 to 80 years that you have on this earth. And that changes how we act. Godly wisdom tells us that there is more than the 75 or 80 years that we get on this earth. That there is the life to come. And godly wisdom tells us that our current situation isn't all there is. And so what we should do is we should live this life in the light of, in expectation of, in preparation for 
the life to come. So whose wisdom are you acting on? Are you acting on the wisdom that says you better get it all now because this is all there is? Your life will tell you if that's what you're doing. Or are you acting on godly wisdom? Third, servants of Christ have confidence in their unchanging God. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Servants of Christ know that God is dependable. They have confidence in him. They know he doesn't change, and they know that they can count on him. What about your life? Do your actions suggest that your confidence is in God? Or do your actions suggest that your confidence you feel as though the only person you can rely on is yourself. If it's going to get done, I have to do it. If I'm going to be secure, I have to provide my security. Who's your confidence in? We say our confidence is in God. But for far too many of us, our confidence is in our own ability or our confidence is in uh, something else. Here's an interesting one, a challenging one, uh, very challenging. Servants of Christ whether rich or poor, are to be content, and both rich and poor are to have the same values. It was already quiet, but man, it just really got quiet. Same values. Verse 9, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. There you go. There's something to take pride in. I'm rich. I'm going to pass away like a wild flower. That's what the Bible says. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Now, we could talk about that a long time, and there's a lot of different things we could say. Uh, there's certainly more than I'm going to say, but, but here's a pretty good summary of this, I think, that I can say in a very, uh, very briefly. The poor don't have anything, and the rich only have their things for what amounts to basically no time at all, just a very brief amount of time. You know, the Bible tells us that man's days are like the grass of the field. You know, it's here and then the wind blows over and it's gone and nobody even remembers it anymore. No time. The poor have nothing and the rich soon won't have anything. We're all sort of in the same boat. Just a little temporary difference. Poor have nothing, rich soon won't have anything Except this, those who lack riches and those who will soon lack riches can both possess what is truly and infinitely valuable citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Absolutely equal. We both will go out of this thing with nothing except our status with God. Poverty and the realization that riches are fleeting should cause both rich and poor to set their affections on things that are above. So what is your relationship to riches, to money, 
If you don't have much, servant of Christ, here's a really good indicator that you are walking out your faith. You don't have much. Are you content? Is your heart set on heaven? Is that what you look to? Is that what satisfies you? You say you belong to Jesus. This is where the rubber meets the road. Is contentment evident in your life? Can people tell that you are living for heaven? If you have a lot, are you content? Is your heart set on heaven? You say you belong to Jesus. This is where the rubber meets the road. Is contentment evident in your life? Or have your riches so got a hold of you that you just want more and more and more? Can people tell that you're living for heaven? Those who have a lot. Can people tell you're living for heaven by the use of your money? Or does your money suggest that you think this life is the only life that's worth investing in? Your money will tell you a lot about your relationship with God. People don't like this. People claim it isn't true. They stick their fingers in their ears and scream la, 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 la. But friends, I'm just telling you, your money tells you a lot about your relationship with God. Tells you if you trust God. Tells you if you value His kingdom. Tells you a lot. So what's your money tell you? Does it tell you you're focused on heaven? Does it tell you you're focused on this life? Does it tell you that Jesus is your master and you are his servant and you're using everything that is his because we understand that everything we have comes from God? We're using the stuff that's his in a way that pleases him? Is that what your money tells? These are the things that speak louder than words. Fifth, servants of Christ understand the dangers of sin and they respond accordingly. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Christians don't live in the land of disobedience. They, they, they may visit there occasionally. They, they may fail from time to time, but they do not live in the land of disobedience. Christians know the dangers of sin and they avoid sin. When they do sin, they're quick to confess and turn away from it. They surrender again to God. You say you're a Christian. Great. What do your actions say? Do your actions reveal a life that's surrendered to Jesus or a life that only claims to be surrendered to Jesus? Believe me, I understand how challenging this is. None of you think pastors are immune to sin, right? Because we are not. I understand how challenging this is. This is a tough one. And yet I believe it's absolutely true. What we do speaks louder 
in what we say. And finally, servants of Christ understand that the best is yet to come. The best isn't now. The best is yet to come. Yeah, that's all right. Go ahead. Verse 12, blesses the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And so again, the question comes to us, do our lives demonstrate that we believe the best is yet to come? Or do our lives say that we think that all that is to be had, that the best that we can do is what we can do right here and right now. So if you're a Christian, you need to embrace this life is full of trials. But at the end, there awaits for you a crown of life that God has promised to all who love him. So you say you're a Christian. Does your life show that that's what you're living for? You're living for the crown of life. Is that what your actions reveal? James is concerned that our words and actions match. He tells us that this is the only kind of faith that is credible. So what about you? These are a few of the things that I think we need to use to examine our lives in light of these teachings of James and honestly evaluate, do our actions support our claim to have faith in God? And we're going to be continually challenged throughout this series in very similar ways. Uh, James does a great job of showing us how, how truly challenging the Christian life is. So evaluate yourself as we go through that. And today as we launch into this book of James, I, I hope, in fact, the main thing that I hope you get out of this message today and the, the main thing that I hope really happens in your heart is that you will embrace the understanding of your relationship with Christ as being that of servant to master. I hope that you will embrace servant of Christ as your fundamental identity. I I think it is incredibly important that Christians embrace this identity. Because I'm convinced that how we see ourselves goes a long way toward determining our actions. And in our culture and in the church, people are not understanding their relationship to Christ correctly. They're not not perceiving it accurately. People have all kinds of wrong ideas about how they are to relate to Christ. People see Christ as a a great source of self-help inspiration. And they relate to him that way. They, They really do. But here's the problem with seeing Jesus as a, as a source of self-help inspiration. When you relate to him that way, you, you largely see him as serving you. He's there to, to help you. He's there to, uh, he's there to uh, help you be the best that you can be. And of course, there's certainly an element of truth to, to that. Jesus does want us to uh, be all that he created us to be. But when we see him as serving us then we only tolerate him as long as he affirms exactly what we want him to affirm about ourselves. People see Christ as a great spiritual teacher and they relate to him that way. 
But often when people do this, they're really selective about the teachings that they receive from him. And, and again, he is only tolerated to the extent that he is uh, helpful to people in supporting what they already think is in their best interest. So if what Jesus says resonates with what they feel, then, then great, thumbs up. But if what Jesus says is at odds with what they feel, then, well, this is the end of my relationship with Jesus. And that's not right. In some quarters of the church today, there's this phrase that gets applied both to Jesus and the Bible, and people say that Jesus and or the Bible are their conversation partners. And what they mean by this is, is they, they imagine themselves sitting around a table on a quest for truth. And their partners at the table are Jesus and the Bible and Allah and uh, the, the latest sociological research coming out of their favorite university from their favorite scholar and uh, Joe Bob who fancies himself to be a philosopher. And they just have a conversation with all of these different, different places that they can get truth from. And then they cobble together the best that uh, Allah and Jesus and Joe Bob have to share, and they come up with their own approach. Sadly, I think a lot of Christians relate to Jesus in these ways. We relate to him on our terms. We set the rules. We mark the boundaries. Within these Jesus... I'm happy to receive from you, but go outside of these, Jesus, and then I'm done with you. It is important for us to relate to Jesus rightly because we will never serve him faithfully until we do. He is not our self-help advisor, though he will help us. He is a great spiritual teacher. But he is more. He certainly is a conversation partner, but one who himself is the truth. But we do not relate to him rightly until we relate to him, receive him as Savior and Lord. We do not relate to him rightly until we receive him as Master and understand ourselves to be his servants. This understanding of our identity must be in place if our actions are ever going to support our claim to have faith in him. So you believe in Jesus. Good. Your actions ought to support it. Your actions speak louder than your words. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Why don't you stand?